This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Happy Easter for those who celebrated today. Holy Week for 300 million of us Orthodox Christians begins Monday. Uh, what is this week for the, uh, the quarantine? Is this four weeks of lockdown? I've lost track. I, I do find it inter- interesting that, that we can safely line up outside grocery stores and wait our turn to go in and buy food, but we can't line up outside our places of worship to receive the most important food, Holy Communion. Uh, have you seen this video of the man who was violently pulled off a bus in Philadelphia by, let's call them overzealous, over officious police officers. He wasn't wearing a mask. Okay, so I get it. Big deal. Give him a mask. Wouldn't that have solved the problem? Just simply give the man a mask. Did they really have to pull him off the bus so violently? You know, I, what I, I've come to realize is when in the interest of slowing the spread of this virus, violent criminals are being released from prison and priests are being thrown in prison. At this point, I think we can officially say the cure may just be worse than the disease. Uh, We are, however, going to take a a respite from coronavirus tonight. I think we can all take a little break. Speaking of uh, gathering around the fire, the electronic bonfire, there are stories to be told aplenty Over the next two hours, TV legend John Barber is here. He'll be joining us live for the uh, full two hours from his home in Lost Wages, Nevada. Uh, John was here last fall, having just published his autobiography, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of a Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV. And the the creator and co-host of Real People, will join me in mere moments. Carlos Caggini is my technical producer, and Ryan White is the live stream producer, and we are live streaming this radio program on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Uh, you know, we had some TV rituals around our house when I was uh, growing up. Saturday night, of course, was hockey night in Canada. Sunday was 60 Minutes, back when it was 
Mike Wallace and Morley Safer. And Wednesdays at 8 p.m. from the late 70s to about 1984, it was Real People. This was a program that featured real people as opposed to celebrities. Real people with unique occupations and hobbies. And it's been heralded as the first reality TV show. The creator or uh, the creator, co-producer and co-host, as I say, here for the full two hours, not to talk only about real people, but uh, his storied show business career as a stand up comedian, writer, TV talk show host, film critic, his his friendships with Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Red Fox, Lenny Bruce, his interviews with Jim Garrison, John Barber dropped out of high school in Toronto at 15 and was deported from the United States, where he sought his fame and fortune at 17. He's recognized, as I say, as the godfather of reality TV, as the creator, producer, co-host, writer of the trend-setting hit Real People. He won the first of his five Emmys as the original host of AMLA in 1970, where he interviewed controversial anti-war guests like Muhammad Ali, Cesar Chavez, and Jane Fonda. He was the first in America to do film reviews on the news, winning three more consecutive Emmys at KNBC's Critic at Large and 10 years as Los Angeles Magazine's most widely read and quoted controversial critic. Prior to that, he was a successful topical stand-up comedian appearing on The Dean Martin Show, The Tonight Show, and others, and in Las Vegas opening for Robert Goulet and Bobby Darin. Comedian activist Dick Gregory did the liner notes for his first album, It's Tough to Be White, and playwright Neil Simon did them for his second album, I Met a Man I Didn't Like. In 1992, John wrote and directed the award-winning The Garrison Tapes, which director Oliver Stone heralded as the perfect companion piece to his JFK movie 25 years later. In 2017, he wrote and directed part two called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which leading researchers applauded as the definitive film on JFK and the rise of fake news, which plagues America to this day. John said, quote, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, just a storyteller. John Barber, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Well, Richard, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I feel like I've almost died and you spoke in the eulogy at my funeral. <laughs> that was absolutely Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and you mentioned some of the difficulties today because of the lockdown. We're in the third week of the uh, the lockdown. Did you happen to get the email that I just sent you? I did. I saw I saw it's a wonderful uh, parody of uh, uh, Mac the Knife by yeah. Bobby Darren called Lockdown. I'm going to try and load that up and, and get that in. If not, it, oh, no, you must do it in the first hour because you're going to have a commercial break because your audience will indeed get a, a kick a kick out of it. And you mentioned that you mentioned that policeman get I saw that video. He got they got on and they hauled some guy off. Well this morning, guess what? Here in Easter in Las Vegas. Now you know Toronto is probably a twelve or a fourteen hour town. New York is probably a twelve or fourteen hour town. But Las Vegas, Nevada is a twenty four hour town. So when the lights go off in Las Vegas, it's like the lights went off all over the world. I mean, because this is the Vatican for 24-hour entertainment. And it's right now, it's like living 
in the, the in Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, and I wake up this morning to the the news that some folks beat up a guy who wasn't wearing a mask. So oh, I dear. said, I said to my wife, "Well, so much for social distancing." And of course, <laughs> everybody everybody is asking me how I feel about this uh, lockdown. So. Uh, later on, you will get to that. The song is only like a minute and a half or two minutes, but it is very funny, and I can tell you how I ca- happened to do it and and why why I, why I did it. But in any event, everybody asks me how I'm coping with this, and I must tell you, Richard, very honestly, it has not affected me in the least, not in the least. Now you think, well, gosh, how can anybody say that? I mean, look at this. You know, I'm upset that the golf courses are closed. I mean, I spent 35 years perfecting my swing. And two years ago, I mastered my swing. And the next day, (laughs) they shut down the golf courses. Timing is everything in life. When I was Mm -hmm. a comic, my timing was really good. But in real life, my timing wasn't so good. I remember one of my very early jokes in my act was that my luck is so bad. If I ever bought a cemetery plot, I'd probably drown at sea. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I feel almost every day of my life I have been in quarantine. Every day of my life for me, Richard, has been an uncertainty. You mentioned I was born in Toronto. That's true. You didn't mention where I was born. I was born in the Salvation Army Charity Ward. My father deserted me in 1939. It was so horrible in our house. He enlisted in the Canadian Army and went off to the peace and quiet of World War II. (laughs) And, And my mother brought uncles into the house like there were grapes. They came in bunches. I was out in the street most of the time when I was six years of age. I w- and so there was a reformatory on Kingston Road, uh, just uh, 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 west of Main Street called St. John's. I spent most of my time there because they had the greatest outdoor rinks. Uh, and then I was in the Manor Theater most of the time where I could see a double feature for five cents, or I was in the uh, jail on Main Street. And fortunately, I ended up in the jail. I say fortunately, because when I got out, I realized the library was across the street. And that's where I spent most of my time. So I had a total life of uncertainty. And then uh, I ran away to the United States to become a professional gambler when I was 16 with uh, $700. I went over a three-month period playing poker after I'd mastered the art of poker by memorizing a book called Scarney on uh, Cards. And I came to the United States to be a professional gambler, but I was here illegally. So I had a total life of uncertainty because, God, is immigration going to catch me? And a year later, indeed, they caught me. As a matter of fact, I was deported a second time. I was deported when I was 29. And then when you're a gambler, you have the uncertainty of whether or not you're going to have a future or make a living at it. And the amazing thing is I did well. And I did so well, Richard, I quit. Now, isn't that bizarre? I yeah, you write, about, you, you write about how once you actually figured out how to 
to, to, to play the game and not lose, you lost your emotional attachment for it. So you, you, and, and subsequently you lost your addiction. Exactly. Because when I decided I was going to become a professional gambler at 16 and got the books and learned how to do it, when I sat down at the table, my game was single deck blackjack and you didn't have to count the cards. You just had to know the odds and the permutations of any poll and how to how to place your bets. And that's what it is that I did. But all of a sudden, I realized when I was a kid and for two years lost everything I could earn or steal, which I did a lot till the cops got me and convicted me a couple of times, I was doing it to make friends. I wasn't doing it to make money. And yeah, you were lonely. You were lonely. I, that, that's it. And, you, you know, know you, sorry, John, you mentioned, the, you know, escaping to the manor theater. Yeah. Uh, to watch, you know, all these great screen legends, Orson Welles and Citizen Kane and so forth. And incidentally, I, I know you've been back to Toronto since. I don't know if you went by uh, Kingston Road and, and uh, McCowan. That's now a Tim Hortons, <laughs> the Manor Theatre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but is, I mean, you, did you see Frank Sinatra on the big screen at the Manor? Because I want to, I want to talk about your, your first real life, uh, encounter with Frank Sinatra because uh, it's just fascinating. I'd be happy to tell you that. Just let me put this sort of in fast forward for you. So when I decided to become a comic and I decided to become a comic because to me, the best person on television at the time was a guy named Jack Parr, the original host of The Tonight Show. And he used to do an opening monologue. And I thought that's how you ended up getting a talk show, which is what I wanted to do. So if you're a comic, it becomes a more uncertain world. Now, I ended up in Los Angeles, as you mentioned. I became the first person to review movies on the news. And here I am writing honest and funny reviews of the people in this town who could hire me. And I was being honest. And if you're honest, you know that 99% of the stuff that they make is crap. As a matter of fact, when I decided years later to quit because I got real people on the air, Neil Simon called me and he said, John, you can't quit. I mean, who else is going to tell the emperors who make these movies that they're wearing no clothes? And I said to him, well, Neil, frankly, I found out I found it very difficult to find original ways to say it's a piece of shit. And it's true. So (laughs) what was happening was then. I create real people. Now, here I'm creating this show in the town that has nothing but writers and directors and actors who won't work again if there's a lot of reality television. So they hated me even more. And I was more quarantined at that time. And then three years later, I got fired over trying to tell Jim Garrison's story. And then what happens to me? My quarantine gets deeper because I'm chosen by Mr. Garrison over Oliver Stone to be uh, the Boswell to tell his story in the two movies that you mentioned. He was, in America, the most reviled and hated man by the U.S. government and the American media because they couldn't stand to investigate the truth of the crime that he solved. So that became very difficult for me. So I've gotten used to being quarantined. All of that is a rehearsal. And I got a lot more to say about <laughs> what, where we are now and what's going to happen. But back to Frank Sinatra that you mentioned him. There was a movie called uh, Till the Clouds Rolled By. 
It was the Jerome Kern story in Technicolor. Jerome Kern wrote the lyrics to one of the great musicals in history, which was Showboat. And at the end of the movie, there's Frank Sinatra on stage at the MGM or Fox Studios or wherever they made this, a huge symphony orchestra. He's dressed in a white tuxedo on top of a white pedestal singing Old Man River. Every bit as movingly as Paul Robeson, who sang it better than anybody on the planet. And then a week later, uh, I'm on a train and I'm bound for Las Vegas and the train has an accident. They don't tell us about me with my guilty conscience. I think either the Toronto police are out looking for me or the immigration department knows this kid snuck across the border. Stop that train and get that guy off. So I hopped off the train, leaving a newspaper on the empty seat. And the uh, only place I could get to by bus was uh, Lake Tahoe. The bus dropped me off in front of the Cal Neva Lodge. And my God, it was like walking into an MGM musical. I I was looking for Judy Garland and Mickey <laughs> Rooney. And I walk in there and, oh, God, it's in Technicolor. And those days, in those days, Richard, people used to dress up. Men were in suits and ties and women were in suits and gowns. I mean... I mean, now, if you were in Las Vegas, you wouldn't recognize it. People go to the shows, look like they just left Walmart. I mean, it's just gone. But in those days, it was, and I drank it all in. So I went to the end of the crap table. Now, on the cover of the book, you see a black and white picture of me with a fabulous, it was a blue suit and tie, but I'm wearing a Stetson. And the reason I bought the Stetson, I was only 17. And I was not old enough to gamble, so I stuck the hat on my head so that I looked like I I wouldn't be all hat and no cattle. (laughs) So I start gambling, and I'm nervous because people are starting to look at me. I'm doing pretty well, and soon the dealers are looking at me, and the people at the bar are looking at me. And I realize, Richard, they're not looking at me. They're looking past me. And I turn around, and coming through the front glass doors, there's Frank Sinatra with his overcoat over his shoulder like an Italian Superman. And he was arm in arm with a fellow named Sam Giancana, Mm. who was a mafia chieftain of Chicago. And the reason this 17-year-old kid recognized him, because it was a front-page story on the cover of the newspaper. That's how I recognized him now. Week earlier, I see him on this pedestal in Toronto. He's walking just three or four feet by me. Everybody got still. Nobody moved as they watched this giant of a star walking by us. And then little did I know that 20 some odd years later, I'd be his private writer for four and a half years. I mean, it's amazing. And my book is filled with those kinds of stories. If you're a dramatist, It's called foreshadowing. I mean, Agatha Christie and mystery writers and all those kind of mystery writers and drama writers foreshadow. They'll put something at the beginning of the story that'll pop up later. You see it in Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes books, Agatha Christie books, all of the detective stories. I didn't plan that. When I was recapturing my life and I told it in one sitting over a five-hour period, I never rewrote anything. As a matter of fact, I had to take out 
300 pages that to get it down to 700 some odd pages i just wrote it once and that was it it was out of my system and then i realized when i was finished so many of the things that happened to me in the first part of my life popped up in the second part of my life and one of the great things of course was meeting and getting getting to know really really well francis albert sinatra right how did how did you come to write for him uh, some 27 years after that first uh, encounter. I was the uh, film critic at uh, Los Angeles Magazine. Gosh, you mentioned that. I don't know why that is, Richard. It's crystal clear. I want to tell you one of the things I miss. I miss being with you in Toronto right now, sitting next to you and talking to you. Because a year ago, when I went to Canada, when my book first came out, you had suggested to me that I hire this very bright uh, Toronto PR lady named Deborah Knight. And I didn't. I, I didn't know of her and I'd already hired somebody. So I rushed my trip to Toronto because I thought the media would welcome me with open arms. I mean, here's a guy that changed the face of American television, for crying out loud, told the most definitive stories about Jim Garris and the solving of the JFK assassination. I thought I would get medals and stuff. I was almost totally ignored, except by you and a few other people. Right. I, for once in your life, you couldn't get arrested. I That's very funny. Bing, barumpum. I could not get <laughs> arrested. I did no major book signing. So just before I left, I, I was on your show, which was wonderful. I just really enjoyed it a lot. Then I met Deborah and I hired Deborah and she was worth and, and, and it was expensive. I won't tell you how much, but it was expensive. She had arranged for me for the first week in April to be in Toronto to do not only your show, but major media, not that your show isn't major media, there's major internet, but I mean major mainstream media and book signings at Eaton's Indigo. And then the second week, thanks also to her and another publicist in the States, a publicist of the stars, by the way, I was to be doing major media in New York City. And there was such a demand for me to come and sign books that the uh, bookstore hired a theater. And I was going to go on stage and talk to the audience and do questions and answers and stay for hours and sign books. Now, because John, I'm sorry for the interruption. I got to take a quick break. We'll come back and, oh, uh, hey, and pick it up on the other side. My friend, John Barber, the creator of Real People and his memoir, Your Mother is Not a Virgin. Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. John Barber stays with us. The godfather of reality television, stand-up comedian, writer, producer, film critic, his uh, autobiography, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of a Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV. Uh, I just wanted to circle back to uh, Francis Albert yeah. and, um, and how you came to write for him. So you were a, a film critic. Yes, and, I was a uh, film critic for Los Angeles Magazine for 10 years. 
I was five years at uh, KNBC, and I won Emmys three years in a row at uh, NBC for it. And they tried to put me under contract, Richard, and I refused to sign a contract because if I signed a contract, they would own my material. And I didn't want anybody to own my stuff. So, And I was fired three times. They kicked me off the news three times for stuff that I'd reviewed. But that's how I came to accidentally meet Francis Albert Sinatra. And how did that, uh, how did he ask you, or why did he ask you to write for him? Uh, I was, it's, it's just bizarre how these things happen. Just bizarre. None of it was planned. All the great things that happened to me, Richard, and I'm a non-believer, as you know, but it was like divine intervention. It's like my life was replanned. All of the disasters in my life were those things that I planned well. But all the good things came to me by accident. Uh, I was reviewing a movie called The Great Gatsby with Robert Redford. And at the time, it was the most heralded, about to be the most heralded movie uh, in America in about 10 years. It would be that week on the cover of Time magazine and News uh, Week. The president of Paramount Studios, Phyllis Diller. I mean, excuse me, Barry Diller. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's actually more of a Phyllis than a Barry, if you know who he was. But in any event, he was taking bows all over America for this masterpiece that he created. And he said, at the time, Richard, it cost only $3 to go to a movie in America. And he said that this film would be in such demand, he was going to double the price. To, uh, hard, he called it a hard ticket price of $6. But not only would Paramount investors and stockholders make a fortune from the movie, they would make a fortune from the, Gat, uh, the Gatsby clothing. Because Robert Redford and the lady stars in the movie were dressed magnificently. The color was magnificent. Dick Clayton was the director, but the problem was... It was a lousy movie, and they told the story of Gatsby backwards. And the reason they told it backwards, because that's how they told it in the book. And to explain that to you, they start out and they show this big party, a, a billionaire's party. And everybody at this party, as the camera goes around, is unlikable. They look great. They look, they look rich. And they look obscene. They look disgusting. You can't like any of them. Not till the very end of the movie did that you realize that Gadsby came from the same kind of background I did. But by that time, we didn't care about him. We didn't care about him at all. So I literally bombed the movie. And the last line of the review was, in order for Paramount to get $6 for this film, they're going to have to charge three to get in and three to get out. <laughs> Yikes. Well, in any event, that quote was picked up by everybody and the movie justifiably bombed. Anyway, I got a call from a guy named George Slaughter. George Slaughter was the uh, owner and co-creator of Lappin. Lappin was co originally created by an English drunk named Digby Wolf. It was a time of the sit-ins and everything during the protest movements of the late 60s. And he said, why not call it laughing? Uh, uh, George, being a smart businessman, ended up owning the show. But it was Digby Dig Dig who really crafted it. 
And it only lasted three years because do you remember Rowan and Martin? Oh, yes. Okay, so it became known as Rowan and Martin's Laughing, which drove Slaughter nuts. It drove him into court with lawsuits and the, and the show died. But being a smart businessman, he had a contract to do some more variety shows. Anyway, at the time he calls me and he said, I just, uh, uh, could I, can I buy those jokes that you write for your reviews? He said to me, and I said, well, George, they're free. They're already in the magazine. You can just take them. I don't care. And he says, but there's so many and they're so good. And so I said, George, you know, I have a better idea. Why not? I'm a critic at large. Nothing in Laughing is more than eight or 12 seconds long. Let me come on as your critic at large. Let me do my own jokes and I'll help you write anything else. He said, when can you start? So I went the next day and I beat myself and George Slaughter and Digby Wolf ended up writing. They had a, a, a special for four revivals of Laughing and George refused to hire a host because he wanted sole credit for owning this show and being the producer of this show. And so what happens is I am, I'm, I'm assigned to write a bunch of Sinatra stuff. And I'm thrilled to do it. Oh, my God, you're kidding me. I'm going to write, write this up. Anyway, the show had no audience. Everything was a laugh track. When Sinatra came in, he came in with his entourage again, and he can be very tough. And I was so afraid of him that I went to the very back of the studio, stood way 25, 50 yards from them, up near the roof. And Digby and George are on stage with the paper from the writers and the stuff that they wrote. And uh, hand some papers, George Slaughter hands some papers to uh, Sinatra. And Sinatra's very tough. Who wrote this shit? Who wrote this crap? And he's throwing papers on the ground. I mean, he doesn't even hand it back to George. Then George runs out of paper. And Sinatra says, well, is that it? And Digby hands him some piece of paper and look at this. And he looks and he starts chuckling. And what I had done, I, one of the first jokes was about a guy in New Jersey who was in prison for uh, a major crime, but he was interviewed by the Democratic Party to be a possible candidate to be the next governor. I forget the joke itself, but Sinatra loved it. It writes itself. <laughs> and, yeah, and so he kept reading these New Jersey jokes, and he loved them because he was from Hoboken, for God's sake. Sure, sure. And he said, who wrote this? And Digby says, Johnny. So he turns around, and he looks way up at me, and he says, hey, kid, and he, he, he uses his index finger to cut, call me down. Now, I'm no kid. I'm like 44, something like that. So I come scurrying down and I'm standing in front of him and he's looking at me. Now, I knew that he hated Rex Reed. Do you remember who Rex Reed was? Oh, yeah. Another film critic. He, Yeah, but he was a star film critic. I was yes. just local. But he was in the national press and he was on all kinds of television shows. He was in a, even in a movie called Myra Breckenridge. But Sinatra hated him. And he's staring and he's looking at me. He said, hold it. Aren't you the guy that's the critic on the NBC News with Tom Snyder? And I said, yes, sir. I'm the guy they call the heterosexual Rex Reed. Okay. Well, he started howling. 
Oh, my God. And then Digby says to him, well, you know, John just put out an album with a liner notes by Dick Gregory called The Stuff to Be White. And he screams. He said, give me one. Give me one. I want to show Sammy. And I said, oh, no, Mr. Sinatra. The L.A. Times bombed it. They said it was the worst taste comedy album in history. And he said, that's great. It makes me want to see it even more. Get it to me. He gives me his card. My secretary's name's Dorothy. Offices are across the street at Formosa Studios. Get it there right away. I I messenger it myself to make sure it gets it. And I put it in Dorothy's hands. And I must tell you, to me, that was the end of it. It was over with. I, oh, my God, I'm in seventh heaven, to God's sake. Sinatra likes my stuff. The very next day, I get a hand-delivered letter to my house. And it's on my wall, and it's in the book. And Sinatra says, you're all mine. And you and I are going to do something someday. And so then he called because he had to do uh a couple of engagements, and he wanted some jokes. So I wrote him a couple of jokes. He sent me 10 brand new $100 bills. Nice. And I, and I, I called back. He gave me his private number, and I called him back. And I would call him Mr. Sinatra, and he kept telling me I had to call him Francis. John, you're a friend now. You're going to call me Francis. I said, would you do me a favor and just send me a check for a dollar? I don't care, so I can frame it but I don't want to spend this money. And he said, John, if you don't spend it, you don't write another joke. And so every, whether I wrote one joke or a letter, do you know Kitty Kelly's book, His Way? Yes, yes. Uh, The unauthorized biography, another lady he didn't like, but one of the letters I wrote for him to People Magazine is quoted by Kitty Kelly in the book as coming from Sinatra. It didn't, it, it came from me. And I did that for four and a half years. Now I'll tell you the warmest story to me about about Francis. I'm going to get you to hold on to that story, John. Okay. okay. We're going to take a time out here, and uh, we'll do that that right after this. John Barber, the creator, host, co-producer of Real People from 1979 to 1984 on NBC, and his memoir, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, the bumpy life and times of a Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV. Back with more in a moment. Don't go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. John Barber is with us for the full two hours. We will open up the phone lines in the second hour and take questions and comments. So back oh, to Frank Sinatra. Great. Oh, that's great. I just love talking to people. Thank Wonderful. you so much. So, so uh, Frank Sinatra, you wrote jokes for him. N- not only jokes, you wrote letters, you wrote a lot of things for him. But for four and a half years, uh, and you were going to tell us about maybe one of the most touching moments uh, between you and Francis Albert. Yes, it, 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 it was. Um you know, I had uh, quite accidentally stumbled across the idea for real people. When I was a critic, I was seated in the, the smallest office in the building, but I had right next to the teletype machines. And so I would, you know, get up when I'd hear them rattle. Uh, they, it would bang. It was Reuters or Associated Press. And a lot of the stories came across the wire, and they'd say, not for broadcast. 
And one of the stories I ran across, the very first one I ran across was about a gorgeous uh, stripper in New York City, gorgeous, gorgeous woman, who billed herself as a stripper for God. And she said, my body was made by God, and God made a woman's body beautiful only so it would attract men. And she said, so I'm going to show my body to men as a stripper, and 10% of what they pay to see me, I will tie to my church. I thought, oh, my God, that's a story. So I began to collect them, and for three years, I could, I could never sell it. I got to be uh, 46 years of age. I had won um, a bunch of Emmys, five Emmys. I'd also won a golden mic, the only one to win mic, uh, uh, Emmys for news and entertainment. And I was unhirable because I was so controversial because I had tried to book Jim Garrison in 1970 on the AM show after I had read his book. And as soon as I booked him, I was fired and, and he was canceled. But I thought it was just show business. I thought nothing about cons conspiracies at all. And when I got the idea for real people and I'd shopped it all over, I had it at ABC for a while and they passed on it. And I wanted Richard Pryor to be my Byron Allen. And uh, uh, they, they said, no, they, they passed on it. So I was out of the business. My son was 10 years of age and I had been away from my son for a long time as a comic going on the road. I did not want to be away another minute from my son because I had an absentee father from the time I was six years of age. And I hated my father for that, even though I did track him down in 1960 in England, which, you know, is a story in the book. But in any event, I decided I'm going to give up the dream of being in show business. I'm going to give up the dream of being a comic or dream, give up the dream of being a talk show. And I literally quit business. And I remember where I was. I was standing on the corner of Valley Spring and Foreman Avenue, right next to the Lakeside Golf Course in front of my little bungalow. It was the first time in my life, Richard, that I was at total peace. Happiest person in my, I'd never been that happy. I'd given up. I thought, I, you know, everybody wanted me to write jokes so I could write jokes, make a great living as a joke writer and spend the rest of my time with my son. So in any event, one day, I'm in Francis' office, and, you know, he was the most unassuming fellow and professional, along with Dean Martin, that I had ever met. If you were in Francis' office, was, which was not very big, there were no plaques. There were no photos of him with stars or anything, because he knew who he was. He was content with his own company. He wore casual slacks and a yellow sh a shirt. And we had this tan with him. And I had given him some stuff that he had wanted. And then he said to me, he said, okay, kid. He says, let's get ready to go on the road now. And uh, he tells me where he's going to be working. And he wants me to be his opening act. At the time, the fellow named Pat Henry, who was a friend of mine, was his opening act. And uh, I said to him, Francis, I can't. He says, what do you mean you can't? He said, you only make $350 a week, for God's sake, at NBC. You're going to make $5,000 a week or more, but more than that, everybody will know who you are, and they should see you. And I said to him, but Francis, so should my son. And he said, what do you mean, so should your son? 
So I said, you know, I'm not going to get into my background, okay? But I just want to tell you, I didn't have a father. And I've never gotten over the loss of that. And I don't want my son to be without a father. So I have to turn you down. I'm going to stay in town, take him to his golf tournaments. He is He's a genius on a golf course. He's got 25 first place trophies. He's you know just 10 years of age, but I can't be without him and I don't have, want him without me. He almost got tearful. He said, oh my God, how wonderful, he said. He said, but we got to do something. And I just blurted out to him and I said, Francis, you know what you should do? He said, what? I said, you should do the Italian roots. He says, what the hell are you talking about Italian roots? I said, didn't you see that series on ABC about Kunta Kinte, the African? It went back and did all his roots and made a star out of the writer of it and the actor of it. I said, you should do an Italian roots. He said, what? I said, listen, Bing Crosby died last year on a golf course. He was 77 years of age. You don't hear any of Bing Crosby's songs today. He said, holy kid, he was my idol. Don't be putting him down. I said, I'm not. I'm just saying that he was an entertainer. You are not just an entertainer. You're a social force. Because if you and your rat pack hadn't sung high hopes for John Kennedy, he and Jackie would have never gotten into the White House. And there's no doubt about that. And it's true. That's what happened. And his eyes lit up. He says, well, what are you talking about? I said, here's what I'd love to do. Let me come to your place in Palm Springs every weekend for the next six months or a year. I will sit you down and I'm going to ask you questions about your life. But in the final tapes, you will never hear my voice. You're going to be looking into camera and telling your story. I will find people over four decades who've been romancing to your songs, who got married to your songs or divorced to your songs. I'll find people who loved you. I will find people who hate you. And the first time I saw you was 17 with Sam Giancana. He froze and he <laughs> stared at me. I thought he was going to punch me. All right, we're going to we're going to hold it right there, John. We'll take okay. a quick time out, come back and you'll tell us the rest of this the story. John Barber, he's got a million of them, folks, and they're all in Your Mother's Not a Virgin. Well, not all of them. Quite a few. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. John Barber is with us, and he'll be with us for the full two hours. And in the second hour, just moments away, we will open up the phone lines, take your calls, questions, and comments about his storied career. Uh, so, John, uh, let's just finish up with that Frank Sinatra story. You had pitched him on this idea. You would go to his house in Palm Springs every weekend for six months, and you would interview him about uh, his career, about his Italian roots, and so forth. So how did that go over? Uh he, he absolutely loved it because I said to him, I said, you know, you will own all the tapes. Uh, I will I will edit and finish it. And I said, as I said, Mr. Sinatra, you'll never hear my, my voice. And I said, it'll be five one hour shows Monday through Friday. The entire world will stop to watch you telling this story of your life. You will be telling the first visual autobiography in history on television. And he lit up and he stood up 
And he said, when can we start? I want you to get me a 10-page outline of this and bring it back right away. So I went home, and in an hour, I had the 10 pages together. I came back and gave it to Dorothy because Sinatra was in a meeting, and I left. He called me two weeks later. He said, when can we start? And I said, I don't know. And he said, what do you mean? I said, Francis, I don't know how this happened. But just by accident, I had a meeting with George Slaughter, and he has a contract with NBC, even though the um, Lapin revivals died. He has a contract to do four one-hour specials, and he wants to know if I could adapt the show that I had on ABC, a half-hour version. Could I do an hour version once a week for these four specials? And I said... I've been trying for three and a half years to get this on, and I have to do it. And Real People, of course, became a monster hit. Now, the first, the and now NBC it was nineteen, it was nineteen eighty, uh, and NBC was banking on the Olympics, and they put it all their eggs in that one basket, and all the eggs got squashed because the United States and the Russians had a problem, and the U.S. wouldn't participate in the Olympics, so. NBC was in the toilet until Real People came along. And Real People, the first hour special on the number three network, NBC, was rated about 38, which is horrible in the ratings. Yeah. But we got 8,000 pieces of mail, which was more than the number one show in television. And nobody at NBC understood why it got so much mail. And so the four specials we had went to six specials, and then the six specials went to an order for 22 hours, and that's how it happened. And as I had predicted, a year earlier, I'm sitting with Maury Gelman at the Daily Variety, I said, this Canadian dropout, if I get lucky, is going to change the face of American television with what I call the entertainment of reality. And indeed, I did. And how did Sinatra take the news that you weren't going to do that, that, that uh, series with him? He was devastated because you, he said, you can't do a show about real people. What have they got to offer? Mm. And I said, just wait and see. And of course, I continued to write stuff for him. And when he saw me once at uh, a, a dinner where he was uh, performing privately, he hugged me. And he said, my God, I had no idea television could be that good. Wow. When was the last time you saw him before he died? Uh, we had uh, a falling out over the uh, death of Robert Kennedy and the autopsy of Robert Kennedy that I don't really want to get into right now, unless one of your callers asked me afterwards. And since yours is, <laughs> is and if, if if a caller asks me, I'll answer it. But if you ask me, I won't answer it. Oh, geez, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, but since it's called the Conspiracy Corner, and I love you, and I love your show, is. Uh, is uh, I would like to have a, 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 a like to comment a little bit about what it is that we are going through. Sadly, not only just in this country, but in Canada and absolutely all around the world. So, if you'd like some of my observations or comments about that, I would be more than happy to talk a little bit about it. And of course, in doing that, you can't uh, neglect to talk a little bit about Trump since he's the president of the United States for a while. Right, right. Well, 
uh, we've got uh, about five minutes here before the break. And I just I wanted to uh, staying in the this the the show business vein, if we could. Sure. Because, uh, you know, Dean Martin, always one of my favorites. I thought, you know, everyone loves Frank, but I thought the the, the one uh, performer who who just made it so effortless, like he was just, you know, like it was rolling off the back of a uh, what's that, you know, water off the back of a duck. It was just so effortless with Dean Martin. Yeah, and, but it uh, must been the beginning. No. Not for Dean at all. And that, and Dean, Dean was the most professional entertainer I had ever met in my entire life. Uh, he was the best prepared entertainer I ever met in my life. And he was so sweet and so warm and so true to his word. Now, he started uh, at NBC doing a variety show, and NBC thought they were hiring the Italian Ed Sullivan. And as the Italian Ed Sullivan, he would say, well, here's a singer, and here's a comic, and here's a puppeteer, and here's a dance act. And it was bombing. His show was absolutely and totally bombing. And his director was a guy by the name of Greg Garrison. And... uh, Anyway, Dean went to uh, Greg when he heard that he thought his show was going to be canceled and said to uh, Greg, you know, I'm better off making movies. I'm not cut out for television. And Greg says to him, Dean, let me tell you something. More people will see one lousy hour of your show than all of your movies combined. So don't give up on television. And Dean said, well, they're going to cancel it. And Greg said, that's because you're not Dean Martin and you're not Ed Sullivan. You must be Dean Martin. And he said, what do you mean I must be Dean Martin? He said, what are you? And Dean said, I'm a saloon singer. Yeah. And you like, you like, what do you like? Well, I like a little booze. What else do you like? Well, I like pretty women. That's right. And that's how, how you should be on your show. You should open your show sitting at a piano bar with a drink in your hand, and then surrounded by a bunch of girls called gold diggers, you know, because that's the only kind that would be attracted to you because you're rich and famous. You're Dean Martin, the saloon singer. So Dean said, if I can talk them into having me continue to do it and try it that way, would you produce it? And Greg says, no, I don't want to produce a television show. I just like being in the booth directing it. And Dean said, Greg, if you produce it, I'll give you half of the show. And Greg said, it's not the half of the show that I want. And Dean said, what is it you want? Greg said, if I'm going to produce it, I have to have the final say of the show. You're just the entertainer. And Dean looked at him and said, will you shake on that? And so they shook hands. So what happened is Greg Garrison became the producer of the show. The show became so successful that Dean Martin became the richest and the largest owner of RCA stock in the United States and a mega millionaire many, many times over. And even after he died, his handshake held up in court. And until Greg died, he got half of everything from the Dean Martin show. And when we come back afterwards... I would like to tell you a couple of additional stories about Dean Martin and Greg Garrison, and then look forward to taking some calls. Plus, also, 
I want to chat just a little bit about what we're going through because people need to be able to smile. And I have some of the most terrific, funniest fans who have sent me stuff that your audience should hear because it is just wonderful. And then I want you to find that song. I've got it all queued up. We'll do okay. that in the second hour, I promise, John. Yeah, and, and, and when you ask, just ask me to introduce it because I need about a minute to, and a half to set it up uh, why I did it for Bobby Darren. Okay? All right, will do. John Barber, your mother's not a virgin, the bumpy life and times of a Canadian dropout who changed the face of American TV, johnbarbersworld.com. And time permitting, we'll also talk a little bit about uh, Jim Garrison as well. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Happy Easter and hello to all of you listening in to this transmission on our flagship station. 740 kilohertz on the amplitude modulation band, 96.7 megahertz on the frequency modulation band, Zoomer Radio here in Toronto. Hiya to those tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey, you streaming us live on zoomerradio.ca. And those of you streaming us on the Zoomer Radio app, those watching the live stream at my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, and the faithful and loyal supporters who gather every week without fail in the YouTube live chat. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. TV legend, writer, producer, stand-up comedian, John Barber, the creator of Real People, is here. And uh, John, we were talking about Dean Martin. You mentioned his producer, uh, Greg Garrison. Turns out, not the nicest of fellows, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> Very tough. I and I want to introduce this segment by saying it'll be a wonderful day in the United States, Richard, when all of us can get back to work except Congress. <laughs> so, and, yes. and about about uh, uh, Greg, okay. I I I am and was ju just a comic, and I was a regular. I was on Dean's Dean show three times. Third time I was on the show. They did the dress rehearsals in front of a live audience so that they can test the shows. And then they iron out all the kinks and then the audience gets to uh, stay if they, uh, and then they shoot, the, they shoot the actual show or the actual show. Anyway, I'm set for my third appearance on the show. And in the middle of the show, I'm introduced by Dean and I come out and I talk about the fact that, you know, uh, I was being uh, uh, brought to you by the uh, through the courtesy of the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Canadian People. And I said that, you know, my mother was Jewish and my father was Scotch, uh, which just proves you can mix anything with Scotch. But when I was growing <laughs> up, it was it was really tough because I was the only kid in synagogue with a plaid skull cap. And. <laughs> You don't know how tough it is to play Havana and Agil on the bagpipe. So anyway, I'm getting these huge laughs. And Greg stops. He said, hang on, John, I'm coming down. So he came downstairs. He said, could you do something else? And I said, what? I, I said to him, but 
Greg, you hired me because you saw me do this on uh, on Merv Griffin's show, and you said you loved it. He said, I do love it, but you know what? I've seen you in a club, and you do some political stuff that I think could last a long time. Do you think you could do a topical joke that might last a long time and rerun? Because this show will be big and rerun. I said, will you give me a minute to think of one? He said, yeah. He said, so just forget the Jew stuff. Now, the audience is listening to him talking to me, and they're giggling because they're backstage at show business. Right. So everybody gets deathly quiet while I'm walking around thinking. And it took me about a minute to two minutes to think of what I thought was a really great joke. So I get on the mic. I said, Greg, I'll be right up, and I'll tell you the joke. He said, John, I trust you. Go ahead. And the audience is all smiles because they're backstage watching show business in action on Dean's show. So he said, okay, on your mark, John. Okay, red light, roll the video. So I said, I'm I'm looking at the camera and then I'm looking over the camera at the audience. I said, you know, you've all been reading in the paper about President Johnson's daughter, Linda. And they nod. And I said, you know, she's engaged to an Air Force pilot named Charles Robb. And they all nod again. And I said, uh, and you know that the uh, Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren called President Johnson and said he would like to perform the service. And they all nod. I said, but what the papers don't tell you is what the president said to Earl Warren. And they're all waiting and smiling. He said, well, Earl, I'll tell you, I like the fact that you called, but I, after that Warren report thing, I don't want you performing that service because I don't want to look back in 30 years and find out my daughter ain't married. <laughs> well, Richard, there was the loudest laugh I ever heard in my life. And it was totally unexpected to me and anybody else. As a matter of fact, a half a dozen people literally stood up and applauded. So that meant that the American audience did not trust the Warren report, didn't trust the truth of the fact that Oswald could have killed that guy, shot him, and had his body thrown backwards, shooting him from behind, okay? No, I never thought anything about that. I'm just a comic, for God's sake. And so anyway, uh, uh, Greg screams in the phone, cut, cut, stop. And he rushes downstairs, and he comes down with a guy with a blue suit. And the guy, he introduces him from standards and practices. He says, you're not doing that uh, one report joke. And I said, but I'm not saying anything that you heard what the, the biggest laugh I've ever had. They said they don't care. NBC supports the Warren Report, and you're not doing that. I said, but I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying there was a conspiracy. You're not doing it. So anyway, Greg puts up his hands, and he announces to the audience, John's going to do the Jew stuff. And so that's what I ended up doing. But what it revealed to me was that there was an undercurrent in the United States and probably more so around the world where they're a lot smarter about these things, that there was something very suspicious and distrustful about the government of the United States, which certainly turned out to be true. But I didn't even know that at the time. And then also another story about Greg Garrison. After that show, uh, and I got an ovation from the audience for my Jew jokes. 
ovation I didn't deserve. It wasn't that funny, but they appreciated what I had done earlier. And Greg asked me to come up to his office privately. And I swear to God, I was so happy because I thought he's going to offer me a show of my own. That's what I was sure of when I walked into the office. So he asked me to sit down and I was waiting for the contract to do a bunch more shows or even get my own show. And he says to me, John, you know, my favorite women are brunettes and more favorite than that is that they're Mexican. And I knew what he was saying because my wife is Mexican. She was a stunning brunette, looked like Jennifer Jones, for God's sake. And I knew what he was going to say. So he says to me, would you mind if I asked your wife for a date? Oh, my gosh. And I said, Greg, I don't know why you're asking me this and not my wife. Because with your reputation, I know that you womenize and and had these adulterous fairs all around town. It's all over town. I'm sure you don't call up the husbands who are writers and producers and actors and ask permission. You just make the phone call. So don't be talking to me. Talk to my wife. And he said, you don't mind if I talk to my wife? I said, no, it's not up to me. It's up to my wife. If she wants to date you, she date you. If she doesn't want to date you, she won't date you, okay? But I can't answer for her. So are you done with me? I get up to leave and I get to the exit. I turn around. Oh, I said, by the way, Greg, do you think you're more attractive than Frank Sinatra? And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, well, my wife, Sarita, used to sing with the Earl Hines Orchestra. And Sinatra was there many times whenever he got to San Francisco to listen to her sing because he loved Earl Hines and tried to date her twice. And twice she turned him down. So if you think you're a better man than Francis, be my guest. He oh, never my word. He never called my wife. And I never got to do the Dean Martin show again. Now, this is how I ended up on The Tonight Show with Frank Sinatra. I get a call from Francis and he says, uh, hey, kid, call me kid, I'm 46 or 47 now. Hey, kid, how would you like to be on the Dean Martin show again? They're roasting me and you're the first guy I asked for. And I said, uh, well, uh, uh, well, I, I, I wouldn't be so sure about that, Francis. He said, what are you kidding? He's my buddy. He calls me back three hours later and he says, what on earth did you do to my buddy? What on earth did you do to Garrison? I said, I didn't do anything. I said, my wife didn't do anything either. Maybe that's the reason. Well, he howled. <laughs> and so he said, well, I'm going to have something better for you. We're going to do some damn it. He said, I'm going to get you as my opening act somewhere, sometime. And then. He called me later that day and he said, I got it. And I said, well, you got what? He said, you're on. And I said, I'm on what? He said, I'm doing the Tonight Show and you're the first person I'm booking. Now, so, uh, Johnny Carson tried to sabotage it. And I don't want to get too much into that unless one of your guests asked. But in any event, I uh, got to that's how I got to do the, uh, the Tonight Show. Because he also did not was not that fond of Carson. He knew the difficulty that I had with with Carson, 
And so that's what happened. Now, if you go to my site, you can see uh, Sinatra in uh, that episode, johnbarbersworld.com. And you will also see me roasting Red Fox. And the reason Red Fox came about, because Francis called me and could not believe that he could not get me on Dean's show when Red Fox could. And he asked me what had happened. And I said, well, Francis, you know, when I started in this business, Red Fox was my mentor. My wife, who sang for Oline's orchestra, knew all the black performers. That's why Dick Gregory did my liner notes. That's why I got to know Red Fox. My wife said, he's filthy, but he's funny, and he's somebody you should know, because he never bombs in front of an audience, even if there are eight people there. So we became, he became my first friend, and, and he was the only lifelong friend I ever had in show business. And when I got my first variety show, even though it was local in Los Angeles, I gave Red Fox his first appearance on television where he could entertain, and it led to Sanford and Son. And they call it Sanford and Son because his real name is John Sanford. You can also see that. But anyway, I'm explaining to Francis. I said, Red is my dearest friend, and he was my mentor. And he got a call from Greg Garrison because, you know, you'd done the, you were the king, of course, and they're going to call you to roast you first because you and Dean are friends. Dean let Greg run the show. And, you know, that's really nice that Dean kept his word, even though he had to turn you down. I said, but when Red Fox was called, Red Fox said, I want Johnny Barber to be on the Diaz to roast me. And uh, Garrison said, no way, and hung up. And Red called him back. He said, wait a minute, don't hang up in my face. What do you mean Johnny Barber's not coming on? And he says he's never coming on this show again. And then Red said, well, find yourself another nigger. Oh, dear. And so uh, Greg Garrison had no no choice but to put Red Fox on because Red was the biggest comic in America at the time. And there I am. And it's a really, really more entertaining story when you get to the book because all of the other guys on the dais had their jokes written for them. I wrote my own material. There you go. I just want to just interject it. Yeah. He was uh, John Barber was quoting Red Fox there, folks. That was Red Fox's saying that. All right. Uh, I got to I want to get back to Dean Martin here for a second, because there's another very touching story that really shows the uh, the the, the, such the uh, warmth and and loyalty of Dean Martin that has to do with your young son at the time. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and playing a round of golf. Tell, tell oh us about that. Oh my gosh. I had forgot. Oh my God. You know, and about 10 years ago, I was thinking about that because my son was older now when he was an executive producer at criminal lines or one of those shows in Hollywood. And I was looking at an old video of my son. Oh my God. He was the Caucasian tiger woods shot his first competitive 69 when he was 13 years of age against Phil Mickelson, won the Canadian National when he was 15. But when he was four and six, he was on the news long before Tiger Woods was ever, ever on the news. And one day I'm at Riviera with my son and Lucille Ball comes over and said, oh, God, I just gave Ricky's clubs away to somebody else. They would have been perfect for your boy. And I said, well, thank you. And so she left. And then Dean came by because he saw Lucy and then saw my son and watched him. 
Now, Dean played golf every day at Riviera Country Club, and he played against two guys who were literally golf hustlers. And they would say their handicap was four or six, when really, really they're scratch. Every day, Dean Martin lost one to two thousand dollars, seven days a week, and he could afford it. It was that, but he loved golf. And anyway, he sees Christopher do six, and he said, "Can I watch you hit balls?" And Christopher's hitting balls, and yes, sir, and no, sir, and then Dean says. How would you like to play golf with me? And my son turned around and looked at me. And I said, yeah, son, certainly. I had not, hadn't the foggiest idea what Dean had in mind. So he picked my son up and put him in the cart and drove off. And so these guys said, hey, Dean, we're playing. And Dean says, tomorrow, today I'm playing with a kid. And here's what he did. He went to the very first tee. My son hit his ball 25 or 30 yards. Dean hit his 200 yards. He drive out, pick up my son's ball, and drop it at the 200-yard marker. My son would get out and take his three wood and hit his three wood maybe 18 yards. Dean would hit his 175. He continued for 18 holes of golf until he had finished an entire round of golf. And I was looking at a video. 10 years ago, and I thought, oh, my God, I got to send Dean a letter. So I sent Dean a letter. Now, Dean lost his son, his favorite son, in an airplane crash. His son clashed, joined the service, and crashed a jet into the San Bernardino Mountains, and he was quite never the same after that. He didn't like to travel with Francis anymore. He'd go for one or two nights and then come back and just stay in the house or go by himself to the golf course. So I decided to sit down and write a letter, and I'm halfway through the letter, and the news came on that Dean Martin had died. Right, right. Just, it broke my heart. It literally broke my heart, because I know he would have loved to have received the letter. Uh, You were were being um, sort of groomed to take over for Merv Griffin. Yes. What happened? happened? I was under under contract to... uh, to Westinghouse, and it happened, uh, well, my wife was pregnant, by the way. Uh, when Merv left Westinghouse, he was signed to go to CBS and do his late-night show against Johnny Carson, and he called me, and he said, I've recommended you to be my replacement at Westinghouse, and, uh, of course, I was thrilled. That was my dream. That was my dream, to be the next Jack Parr, have a talk show. Because there were so many interesting people to talk to and people that audience should should hear from. And I had a knack for finding them because I was a storyteller and I knew great stories and people who could tell the great stories. So I was looking forward to that. And so uh, the one night that I hosted the entire show, my ratings were as good as Merv's. And I thought it was a slam dunk to get the show. But McGannon, who was the president of Westinghouse, and his program director were uh, Anglophiles, and they loved David Frost. And one of the reasons they loved David Frost is when they went to visit him in London, Dave took him to 10 Downing Street in Buckingham Palace. And when I heard that they were negotiating with him, I called them and I said, listen, why don't you guys get four other guys and put them under contract and do a Scarlet O'Hara? And I said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, Selznick shut down, gone with the wind because he couldn't find Scarlett O'Hara. He hadn't discovered Vivian Lee yet. I said, everybody knows Merv's leaving. Hold a talent contest for the next host. 
give me one night and the other guys their night, and I'll leave it up and let the American public vote on who would be his replacement. I said, you'll have monster ratings. They signed David Frost. And as a result of that, I got a call from the president of uh, Metro Media, Chuck Young in L.A. He said, you know, we want to hire you to do a poor man's tonight show because they think Frost is going to bomb. We want to give you a variety show and uh, and we want you under contract when he bombs. Well, he didn't bomb right away. It took him about a year to bomb before they they finally got rid of him. It was too late. And that's why I happened to put Red Fox on. But one funny story about that. Does the name Harlan Ellison ring a bell to you at all? Harlan was a tough TV critic. Oh, my God. The the harshest. The harshest. He not. Well, harsh, but by far the best. He he and a a fellow in uh, Chicago were the two best. Uh, Gary Deeb was his name. Gary Deeb had the greatest line about American television. He said, American television is the only business in the country where competition does not improve the product. <laughs> he is so right. But anyway, Harlan, Harlan Ellison is by far one of the great science fiction writers in the world, along with Nabokov and a few other really great science fiction. He wrote one of the some of the best Star Treks. And I mean, unbelievable. As a matter of fact, he wrote The Terminator. And the Terminator was a short story that was stolen by Paramount Pictures and turned into the movie was Schwarzenegger. And and Harlan was so tough, he was going to sue his agent, his manager, his publicist, and his wife. And the whole town said, don't sue because you'll never work in this town again. He sued Paramount (laughs) and he won and he took half of his winnings, which were monstrous, got a huge billboard up at Sunset in Delaney, and it said, I beat the bastards, and he never was out of work after that. Well, well, that- I've got to take a break here, John, but uh, uh, when we come back, I know Harlan wasn't uh, particularly kind to you in some oh, of his no, reviews, but he wasn't at all. But we'll, uh, we'll we'll get you to tell that story on the other side. John Barber, my guest, JohnBarbersWorld.com is the website. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Back with John Barber. And uh, John, I promise in the next segment, we're going to get down to your, we're going to get to your lockdown song. uh, (laughs) There's a short segment coming up, but we uh, we have that ready to go. Uh, But back to, uh, let's see, we were talking about Harlan Ellison. Yeah, Harlan Ellison. Yeah, Harlan Ellison won numerous, numerous awards as a writer. Absolutely brilliant. And he wrote uh, a... uh, television column for the free press in Los Angeles, which was the most read column in Hollywood, more so than Variety or Report or anything like that, because it was Harlan Ellison. It was called The Glass Teat, T-E-A-T. I mean, a, a brilliant title and deservedly so. And he wrote, well, anyway, he happened to review my appearance on the Merv Griffin show and he called me a gay, called me a fag. And he wanted to know how come Westinghouse found his fag to replace Merv Griffin, who was also gay, by the way, but he kept it in a closet for a long time. And uh, 
I was shocked when I saw it, but it was written so funny and so smartly, I couldn't help finish reading the whole thing. Anyway, I get this call from Chuck Young. Chuck Young was a guy that put the first angry man in America on television. His name was Joe Pine. Uh, oh, my God. Brilliant, brilliant. And nobody knows of him today, but he was America's first Howard Beale. Mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. So anyway, I'm the second guy that Chuck Young hires to do this show. And aside from wanting to put Red Fox on the show and give him a break, I say to my producer, his name's Bill Walker, very successful local producer. I said, you know, the most important thing in the world to me is television. Edward R. Murrow said years ago, it's the umbilical cord that feeds the world. It can either nourish the world or starve the world. Well, it nourished the world in the 50s, and now it's starving the world. But at the time, there, were, there was hope for television. There's no longer any hope for television. It's all, it's all, it's all, all dead. And that's, why, and that's why it's called medium, because to have anything on it <laughs> is rare and is never well done. So in, in any event, I said, I want somebody on who can talk about television and I want them on every week to review what's coming up and suggest to people what to watch. He said, well, there's nobody like that. And I said, Harlan Ellison. He said, you don't want to hire him. The guy hates you. He thinks you're a fruitcake. I said, I don't care. He's funny. Book him. And, and Bill says, I'm not going to call him. I said, well, I'll call him. I, I called the Writers Guild and the Writers Guild wouldn't give me his Name, they said they'd forward a message. No. So I just looked in the white pages. And there was his name, Harlan Ellison. I picked it up, phone up. He answered on the first ring, very gruff voice, yeah, like that. And I said, Harlan Ellison? He said, yeah. I said, this is John Barber. Oh, shit. And then I said, oh, no, you already said that in the article. Oh, geez, yeah. It's so a family I show, John, even though it's late. <laughs> oh, 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 well, then bleep it. It'll make it, it'll make it more salacious for your listeners. Right. So, but in any event, I said, you already said that in the article. And I said, Harlan, can you talk as well as you write? He said, what a stupid question. I said, no, it's not a stupid question for my purposes. He said, what are your purposes? I said, Chuck Young has just hired me to do a late night show. Because in spite of what you said about me hosting my own show, Chuck Young thinks that Frost will bomb and that they'll have me under contract. I would like to have somebody on every week to talk about television. And I'd prefer it be you if you can speak as well as you can write. I said, it only pays minimum, but, you know, you'd be like a, a regular if you if you would want to do it. And he said, are you kidding me? I said, no, I'm very serious. He said, well, I'm not going to change my mind about you. I said, I'm not <laughs> asking you to. As a matter of fact, if you come on the air and put me down, I'll defend myself, okay? And we'll have a feud on the air. I don't care. It's great television. So he shows up. Now, what happens is everybody in town knows Harlan Ellison is going to be on my first show. Now, I'm not as well known as Harlan, but I'm not, the ratings were terrific. So Monday after the show, I get a call from Chuck Young. And Chuck says, John, I'm, I'm stunned. You did really well. I love the show. I love the content. I'm really pleased that, with what you're doing. And he said, the whole town was watching. He said, but you never guess. You just left my office. And I said, who? 
He said, Harlan Ellison. I said, terrific. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, Chuck, give a guy a show. I mean, he is really, he's really verbal. He's really smart and he deserves to have a show. He says, uh, no, I'm not giving him a show. And I said, why not? And Chuck says, because he wants yours. He thinks you're useless. <laughs> so now I say that because I want to explain to something. I am a performer who probably has a non-existent ego. I didn't get into this business for fame or fortune to look for that. Richard, I got in the business to look for myself. I didn't even know who I was. I'm looking when I do a talk show, look at all the famous people I get to talk to. Maybe I'll learn some secrets about their lives or how they survived misfortunes that were worse than mine and still survived. I was looking for a reason to be alive or something to be alive about. And that's why I love doing talk shows. And that's why I love telling stories and why I love listening to stories. So, but that being said, it also shows what a fan of talent and intellect I am, even if I don't like them. One of the most despicable people I ever met in person was Mort Saul. Yes. And that story is in my book. But one of the most brilliant people I ever met was also Mort Saul. I can separate the personal Mort Saul from the professional Mort Saul. So I made it a point to keep on hiring Harlan Ellison. And every show that I must have had six or eight local talk shows from which I was constantly fired. And the first person I ever booked on the show was always Harlan Ellison. And if you go to my site, johnbarbersworld.com, you can Google. I did a two-week late-night show on ABC that was the equal to, uh, uh, who was the guy that used to do the, CBS Letterman. Yeah. My ratings were equal to Letterman. And Bristol Myers was going to pay for the show. And ABC wouldn't have to spend a nickel. But they thought I was too controversial to put on television because I tried to book people like Jim Garrison. Let so, me ask you about Harlan Ellison. Did he ever warm up to you after you showed such loyalty to him? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I mean, whenever I called, he was always, he'd drop everything to come and do the show because he thought he was doing me a favor, which he was. <laughs> but not only that, people like Frank Zappa started to call me because they thought, oh, my God, here's somebody smart on television. Can I come and be a part of your smartness? And if you go, let me tell you, so I have a, a webmaster who lives in Thailand. He inherited $500,000 five years ago. He left the country because he thought Hillary was going to become president, moved to Thailand, and he's still my webmaster. Eight months ago, he said to me, John, didn't you do a, a show with Frank Zappa? I said, yeah, he was on my late night show on ABC. He said, do you still have that tape somewhere? And I said, well, I'm not sure, but my son said I have. I must have it somewhere. My son knows everything about what I do. Well, I found it. And he said, send it to me. I said, hold it. Frank died 15 years ago. Who wants to listen to Frank now? And he said, listen, John, the Internet is my business. And I'm telling you, people want to still listen to people like Frank Zappa, even when they're speaking from the grave. Eight months ago, I sent him the tape. I reposted it yesterday because in 1986, when I interviewed him, he said the toughest thing to be in America is to be bright. Americans do not like bright people. 
It is more valid today than it was then. So I reposted it. Do you know how many views it's had, Richard, in eight months? A couple of million? 177,000. Which is that's pretty good. That's pretty darn good. I mean, that's astonishing because, you know, I only have eight or nine thousand subscribers. I don't have as many many, and I don't look for subscribers. I just do this because I because I enjoy doing it. And, you know, I can't like years ago in the 50s and 60s, I could point I could name 50 people, men and women of all stripes all sexual persuasions, all political persuasions, all religious persuasions, all whom I admired because of their intellect and their ability to tell a story and why they believe in what they believe. There is not one person in American television today who is articulate. When I got into television, you had to have a modicum of talent, a modicum of intellect, and some personality. These are three things that we would keep you unemployed in America. <laughs> I mean, real people in its day was like opening a bottle of Lafitte Rothschild wine, superb wine. But if you leave wine out for 30 years, it turns to vinegar. And the only talent you need today to be a reality star is an absence of shame. American That's true. television, That's true. American television and is, is an absolute disgrace. And almost everything about America, I must tell you, is a disgrace. So, but in, in, in any event, a couple of things about this lockdown business. The, what is going to be difficult for most people, most people, to find out the worst company they have when they're locked down is themselves. <laughs> yeah. They're going to have to finally face themselves and one of the good things that can come out of this is they're going people are going to suddenly realize that there are a lot of things and a lot of people that they can do without so when this is over and it will be over because as the bible says this too shall pass when it's over if these people only focus on the things that they enjoy and on the people that they enjoy and are not with things and people just to pass the time, but just with those things and people that give them joy. They will become the happiest people on the planet because they will discover the happiness that was originally inside them. Indeed. I got to take a time out, John. We'll be back more with John Barber right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. A uh, a quick programming note next week. Uh, Thomas Carey and uh, Don Schmidt, the Roswell investigators, will be uh, here for the full two hours. They have a, a brand new book. Uh, it's the uh, the Roswell UFO Incident Pictorial. And uh, just uh, some amazing images. I know it's radio, uh, but um, we'll, we'll talk, obviously, about their uh, decades-long investigation into the Roswell UFO Incident. And, uh, oh, I said the full two hours. Actually, no, they'll be on for the first hour. The second hour, Preston Dennett, 
another ufologist will be uh, on the program to talk about onboard ufo encounters so ufos pillar to post next week on the conspiracy show john barber stays with us for a few moments yet the uh, the book is your mother's not a virgin the bumpy life and times of a canadian dropout who changed the face of american tv and uh John, I know uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, that you used to open for Bobby Darren in Las Vegas. Yes. And uh, you have a uh, a little parody song I'd like you to set up and we'll play that. <laughs> okay, quick question. How much actual airtime do we have? Do uh, we have about uh, four minutes here. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's not enough because I had a couple of really funny, funny stories. Oh, we can do those after the break, but we'll, I mean, this segment is about, we have a four oh, minutes, you can oh, set four, up and play the song. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, when I, I was doing Real People, one of the guys I hired was a fellow named Mark Russell, a great piano player, but he was also a great satirist. He used to write very funny political songs. I don't know if you remember his name and you wouldn't I remember him. I remember, no, I remember Mark Russell. Okay, there yes. you go. Do you remember a guy named Tom Lehrer? My Tom? chemistry teacher used to play his records in high school. Oh, there you go. Well, Tom Lehrer out of Harvard University did the same. And long before that, a Danish pianist by the name of uh, Victor Borga. And I always admired these talents. Now, when I was opening for Bobby Darren at the Sands Hotel, in between shows, I would write funny lyrics to some of his songs. And and I would sing them. To, and he loved it. So when we would go to his beach house and go down there and we'd have these parties, he'd have me introduce me and we'd play them and, and he'd play and I'd sing. And it was it was a hit. So anyway, the other night I was listening to once again, Bobby do Mac the Knife and Mac the Knife. Nobody does it like him. Not Sinatra, not Ella Fitzgerald. And thinking about how much I missed Bobby and how much I loved him. We were the last act at the Sands before they tore it down. Anyway, these I thought about them, and these lyrics that you're about to hear instantly popped into my head. Now, I'm not a piano player like Mark Russell, and I can't sing like any, anybody, but I did it because I think Bobby would have loved it, and I think some people would get a kick out of it. So this is John Barber Sings About Lockdown. All right, take it away, Carlos. Oh, this virus. Carlos, are you there? Lockdown just with my wife. Food on the shelf. But my wife says, stay six feet, dear. Keep your washed hands to yourself. It's a bummer. What can I do? I feel sexy. What happened to Carlos? And so lewd. But the, song the is government playing, we can't says hear no do oh, that here. <laughs> Just by <laughs> People can hear it, but we, you and I can't hear it. We oh, get God, screwed. So you haven't heard I it. I watch TV. Yeah, I have. No, we need to stop. because Anyway, he's playing. In the okay. breaks, what do I see? Selling products I cannot buy. Even shit for my ED. I fear the streets, there's much bad news, but preachers say this too shall pass. A man shot his friend for toilet paper just to wipe his ass. I must get out, get fresh air, I must do what the president said. 
I want out Easter, but damn, CNN just said Bonnie's dead. All right, there we go. Uh, John and I couldn't actually hear the song playing. I did hear it earlier, though. So that's uh, John Barber's uh, tribute to uh, Bobby Darren's version of Mac the Knife. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have heard it. Oh, my God, I haven't heard it since it's first aired. So I'm going to have to listen to the rebroadcast of your show just to find out how it sounds on, on, real, on real Internet rather than my stuff anyway so you know living in i i said you know people are going to have a tough time discovering themselves the other thing is that you know in america 75 percent of all people working who are married have to hold two jobs a husband has to hold a job the wife has to hold a job so what is going to have to happen is now a lot of them are forced to stay home because you know the truth they're supporting two kids two cars and a house and i'll tell you what's going to happen Divorces are going to spread faster than the disease, and in a few lucky cases in nine months, there might be more people in 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 the country. But I think that soon, husbands and wives, with the shift out, a lot of couples, Richard, uh, uh, are going to discover that sex is just a temporary vaccine against boredom. And uh, I have a, a funny story. From golf, they shut down the golf courses, and the only golf course is a golf course. How much time do we have in this segment? Uh, I think we. I think we should probably save this till uh, after the break. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll... we'll 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 head into a break. John Barber, he's uh, he's added uh, song parody master to his long list of credits, and uh, we'll come back on the other side and talk more about the lockdown, real people and uh, other things right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just a few moments remain with John Barber, johnbarbersworld.com. And uh, just uh, just let's spend a few moments. I know you want to finish up with uh, some, some lockdown observations, and then I want to ask you about uh, Jim Garrison in the time that remains. Well, first off, I just want to say what a lovely day to be a bank robber. I mean, you could walk into Bank of Nova Scotia with a mask and nobody's going to say anything. And you go up to the teller and you say, give me all your money or I'll sneeze on you. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell you a couple of lighter stories rather than get in. And then I'll close with some comments about Jim Jim. Jim Garrison, a lady friend of mine, is retired, and her husband, they're quite well-to-do, and her husband spends all his time uh, playing poker, goes to the casinos every day and plays poker, or wins or loses, it doesn't matter. That's how he spends his time with his five buddies. So what his wife did, she built a poker table in their house, so they're good in there, and they're social distancing, and they're sitting around the poker table, and they're playing poker for hours, and guess what they're playing with? What? Rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> and then I have another woman. She's really funny. And I and she's telling me the truth because she sent the pictures. You know, it is very tough to get masks. 
I mean, hospitals can't even get masks. You can't get them at any of the drugstores. She has a 12-year-old son and a 14-year-old son. And, and, and guess what they made masks out of? Toilet paper? No. They're hockey jock straps. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Lord. Yeah, that would work. I could see that working. And then, and then I have a friend of mine, Jeff Peterson. He's a, a golfing friend of mine. He's quite, quite well-to-do. And, of course, it, it, it has to stay home with his uh, wife. And they've been practicing social distancing for years. <laughs> but anyway, they're locked down now. And they're not getting along. So he said he... They went to a marriage counselor. Of course, they had the six feet, six feet in front of the marriage counselor and six feet apart. And all his wife does is complain about even now that Jeff is the totally the unsexiest, least erotic, least masculine man she's ever known. He never kisses her passionately or anything. Said whereupon the psychiatrist got up and walked around and grabbed his wife and tilted her head back and gave her the biggest French kiss right on the mouth, which he said his wife seemed to enjoy a lot. And then very matter-of-factly, the psychiatrist goes back and he sits down and he says, now, can you at least do that three times a week? And Jeff said, well, I can bring her in Monday and I can bring her in Wednesday, but Friday I'm going fishing. <laughs> <laughs> In any event, about Jim Garrison, all you need to know about Mr. Garrison, and I may have told you this story before, I hope that, that when this, I only hope this is over, I hope it's over so everybody can get back. It'll never be as it was before. People say, uh, let's get back to normal. And I posted on Facebook to question to them, to which I got almost a thousand replies. Does anyone actually believe that after November 22nd, 1963, the United States was ever normal? Excellent not, point. Not one could answer in the affirmative. And there are a lot of reasons why this will not be changed. America needs to be changed systematically, and it will not be changed in the voting booth. Mark my words, uh, I hope I get to come back to you again later, and I'll explain to you how right. and why there is only one way that this society can become more human and more successful. But well, I Mil Milton Friedman said uh, that, there's, uh, that real change only happens as a result of a crisis, either real or perceived. And we can talk. Uh, at some point, too, is, you know, at, at what parts of this crisis are real? You know what it seems like to me? I, was at the, I heard you open the show today talking about going to the market and have, having to stand in line. We have supermarkets here in town that are as big as airport hangers, for Christ's sake. And then they're only allowing 100 people in at a time. I went yesterday morning to go to Albertson, one of our bigger markets. I have to stand outside with a security card. Uh, a, a guard there on the sidewalk our footprints in red we're supposed to stand and we wait to go in and after we're in there's a line to get out and you know what it seems like to me richard what's that it seems to me that the united states declared war on itself it seems to me that the one percent staged a sneak attack on the 99 percent 
and the 99% never fired a shot and just stayed home. Yes, we're being pushed around. And uh, what's what's very disturbing is how how all of us really are so quick to acquiesce and to cower in our homes. I mean, we're a free people. And I no, believe we're that, not. Well, uh, let, listen, listen to me. You know, I have uh, I have 5000 friends all year allowed on Facebook and half of them are Trump supporters and half of them are Trump haters. I, you know, as long as they don't swear at one another, like you wouldn't let me swear earlier in your show. And as long as they're not rude to another one another, I absolutely and totally believe in a free press and in free speech. OK, and, and, and it's proven if you look at anybody who posts on my site, there are all kinds of wacky theories and conspiracy theories. I, I let them talk. But to me, it's all over with. John, Jim Garrison solved the case. It's a cold case already, already in the Justice Department. When they open that, they will unravel everything that's wrong in this country. Now, the Trump supporters who think that he's been sent by God to save the system or change the system or improve the system, there are two things I keep telling my supporters that he has not done and he could do. The first thing that he has to do, they talk about the Fed. The Federal Reserve is a private bank. Mm -hmm. And I said, he, they say he's going to take over the Fed. And I said, well, he can do that without an army. He can just use his pen because all he has to do is reverse the Communications Act signed by Bill Clinton, the worst president in American history, that put 95% of our media into the hands of six corporations, but he hasn't done it yet. Um, uh, that comes to the free press. And when it comes to the Fed, John Kennedy printed money in 1963. He was out to destroy the Fed because it, in 1963, if you borrowed money, you paid them back 21%. And the Constitution calls for the Treasury to print money. So he printed silver certificates. And it was executive order 11110. And I have some of those silver certificates. And that would have put these private bankers out of business. I'll tell you why. Donald Trump has not reversed the Communications Act. He keeps calling them the fake news. Right? Right, right. Why doesn't he do something about it? Indeed. Well, in terms of well, the I'll Fed. I'll tell you why the, the, he doesn't. Okay. And now I'm just speculating. Right. Because I, my business is real people. He needs an enemy. And without and preachers need a hell. I know you're a Christian, but without a hell, there's there's no there is no heaven for you to go to church and pray about and make some fake minister a mega millionaire again when you could stay home and read the Bible as Jesus Christ told you to. Jesus never told you to go to a temple. He threw the money money changers out of the temple. Buy a Bible and stay home. You don't have to go and gather. The church is, God, Jesus said that God is within you. And it's not in any building. We have 20 mega millionaire preachers in this country who are fakes who run around with hookers, for God's sake. And they don't even have, now what Donald Trump needs is an enemy. But if he restores, when John Kennedy was killed, there were 1,500 owners of the press. Now, if he restores a free press, you're going to have people actually reporting on the doings of Donald Trump that he doesn't want reported, whatever they may be. They will, because people who are anti-Trump 
need a platform too. But this way he can control these six. And he has not signed an executive order to, to have the Treasury print any money because he also needs the Federal Reserve to be an enemy. This system will not change in the voting booth. Do you know how the Vietnam War ended? Well, you tell me, John. We've got about a, we've got about thirty seconds here, so okay, we need to wrap up. On the streets of Chicago, people voted on the streets with their feet. That is the only way that this system will change. It is corrupt from bottom to end, and has been for a hundred years, and since it was founded by committing genocides on the Indians that used to own this land, and every Indian was a communist. Nobody owned land; they didn't even know what land was. It was the introduction of private property and unfettered and unchecked capitalism. Greed is destroying the planet. And we are the capital of greed. We have murdered every president and peacemaker in this country. And we've invaded 30 countries since the end of the Second World War to change their socialist people's republics that the new ones are trying to build. John, I'm out of time. Always a delight. Glad we ended on a happy high note. <laughs> well, I don't know that we did, but the one reason, I, aside from everybody getting back to their lives, I want to get back to Toronto to see you again and to see Deborah Knight and to do some real book signings at Indigo. All right. I look forward to that, John. Thank you so much. John Barber, johnbarbersworld.com. All right. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the road. Just time enough to say so long. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.